Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. All right. It is great to see you guys today. I've, uh, I've certainly felt like I've been here before. Uh, this doesn't feel like the first time I've ever been here. Uh, it is great to be back. Uh, this will always be one of my favorite places in the world to preach. And so to be back here today and to be able to share the Word of God is a particular joy. I just want you to know that it brings me untold delight to be able to be with you here today and to open the Word of God. Uh, no doubt one of my favorite things to do is to preach the Word of God and to preach it to you, New Hope Fellowship. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. So uh, let me just pause and thank God and ask Him for His blessing on this time and ask that He would work through the preaching of His Word. Uh, Father, we... We're incredibly, incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to gather here today. And one of the things that we love about the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, is that it unites people across boundaries, whether they be geographic boundaries, or whether they be cultural boundaries, or whether they be racial boundaries, or whether they be socioeconomic boundaries, whatever the case is, we're thankful that we can join together in worshiping Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for this unique privilege today to be able to gather together, uh, for me to be with my brothers and sisters who I love so much at New Hope Fellowship, and to open your word. And so, God, we pray and we ask, we plead with you that your spirit would work through the preaching of your word today. Father, be gracious to us. Be merciful to us. Help us to understand what your word has to say. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let me open here from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, that's okay. Uh, if, if you're new here or maybe uh, have not picked up a Bible recently, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, a, a story that I'm guessing maybe some of you are familiar with. So let me open here and remind you as I read that this is the Word of God, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now let's be honest, there's a lot to like about the Zacchaeus story. Right, you have this wee little man who climbs up in a tree, 
And it just so happens that Jesus sees him and there's this great big happy ending. I love the Zacchaeus story. And I loved it, I think, not just because of the appeal of the story, but I also loved it because there was a great children's song that went with that story. I think that's one of the reasons why I always loved Zacchaeus growing up. I grew up going to church. I wasn't a Christian until my first year of college, but I knew some of the songs. Right? I knew that Noah had an arky arky. And I knew that <laughs> Father Abraham had many sons. Right? And I knew about this wee little man named Zacchaeus. Now, I realize I grew up in small town Iowa, so maybe there's more sophisticated songs here in New York. I'm not sure. I'm guessing at least some of you are familiar with this song about Zacchaeus. Now, uh, in keeping with my long-standing policy, I will not sing this song, but I will recite it for you. I have not picked up a singing voice in Nebraska. This will not be a good thing, so I'll just recite it for you, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down from going to your house today. From going to your house today. I mean, what a song, right? What a story. But here's the thing about Zacchaeus, and here's the thing that you probably need to know today. Zacchaeus is not the lovable little character that we make him out to be. We may think of Zacchaeus as the biblical equivalent of a hobbit, minus the big feet. Right? We may think that he's this lovable little small character that just needs to earn his way, that he just needs to show that he too has value. But the reality is that when you look at the story, Zacchaeus is not a lovable character at all. In fact, he's a pretty awful person. And that kind of changes the way you read the story. And I think we can say this too. Oftentimes we think that this story is neat and tidy. It's just one of those classic underdogs. This is great. But the fact is that this is not a neat and tidy story at all. It's actually pretty scandalous. In fact, you look at the way people respond to what Jesus does. They didn't say, oh, that's great that he went to Zacchaeus. They're all grumbling. And so everything you probably think you know about that story, if you're just going based upon the song or based upon maybe what you remember growing up, is probably not what it actually is about. And so the goal today is to maybe get rid of the things that we thought about the Zacchaeus story and instead figure out what is this actually teaching. And as we do, I think we'll discover that there's some really really powerful stuff happening here in Luke chapter 19. In fact, I would argue it's life-changing. And so my goal today is to show you what the passage says and ultimately to point you to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Because make no mistake, that is who this story is about. It's not about the man who's in the tree, it's about the man who's at the bottom of the tree. This is about the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so if you leave today and you're more in love with the wee little man, I've failed you. But if you leave today, and you're more in love with the Savior, then I think you're starting to understand what this story is about. And that's the goal, to point you to Jesus, and to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ more. And so really, there's just two things we're going to talk about today. The first is simply this, the surprising and scandalous nature of the gospel. Now by gospel, we just mean good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's a surprising and scandalous nature to the gospel. Now, our first hint that Zacchaeus is not a lovable little underdog is in verse 2. All right, verse 2 says this. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, it's probably fair to say that even in 2016, your tax collector is probably not your favorite person. Right? If you get a notice from someone from the IRS, you probably don't think, well, I really appreciate they sent me a letter. I was hoping to catch up with them anyway. Right? That's not the way we think of tax collectors. 
But that said, I think most of us would say that the people who work for the IRS are probably, by and large, honest, hardworking people. If you had a neighbor who worked for the IRS, you probably would not think, let's stay away from him or her. You'd probably think they're probably a good, honest neighbor. And so for that reason, I think it's a little hard for us to understand what's happening in this story. I think it's a little difficult for us to understand why Zacchaeus was such a terrible person and why the crowds were so scandalized about what's happening here. After all, all we really know about Zacchaeus in this story is that he was a tax collector and he was rich. And from our perspective, from the 21st century perspective, neither one of those really seem all that bad to us. And so the question is, why would I say that verse 2 is our first hint that Zacchaeus was not a good dude? Well, I think in order to understand what's happening here, you probably need to understand the way the tax collection system worked in this time. In the first century Roman Empire, this is how taxes would be collected. The Roman government would bid out the right to collect taxes. And so someone would buy the right to, to collect taxes. This person would be known as the tax farmer. The tax farmer would then hire chief tax collectors who would hire tax collectors. And so you have this gigantic hierarchy system in place, and it was ripe for corruption. And here's why. Here's why. Because once the Roman government got their money, they didn't care what the tax collectors below them did. And so for the sake of trying to make this understandable, let me oversimplify this, okay? Let's say that the tax farmer paid the Roman government $1,000 to collect taxes from you. Now listen, I know that they didn't have dollars, okay? So you don't have to corner me after this sermon and be like, they didn't have dollars back then. I know that. I'm trying to make it simple, right? And I know that $1,000 may not be the right figure, but just for the sake of simplicity, go with me here. All right, so the Roman tax farmer pays $1,000 to the government to collect taxes. Well, when they pass on that right to the chief tax collector, they're going to charge a little bit more so they can make some money, so maybe $1,200. And the chief tax collector is going to charge the tax collector, and then the tax collector is going to add a little bit onto your bill. And so by the time it gets to you, it might be, for example, $1,500. Or, and this is the point, it could be anything. Because the Roman government didn't really care. Once they got their money, they didn't care what the people below them did. And so this was a system that was ripe for corruption. The tax collectors could pretty much charge anything they wanted, and the Roman government would just turn their head the other way. And so you could see how if you have dishonest people, if you have people who are looking to make a quick buck, and it's not necessarily going to get them in trouble, they're going to do whatever they can to extort people and to get all the money that they can possibly collect. Tax collectors in this particular culture were known as lying, cheating frauds. In fact, they were so well known for their dishonesty that generally speaking, their testimony was not allowed in the court of law. Because everyone assumed a tax collector is always a liar. And so the fact that Zacchaeus is a tax collector and the fact that he is rich tells us that he was good at his job. And when we say good at his job, what we mean is he was particularly corrupt and particularly wicked in the way he extorted money. In other words, he was a pretty terrible guy. He probably wronged a lot of people out of their money. He was the anti-Robin Hood, taking from the poor so that he could become rich. And so I think you need to understand that to understand what's going on in this story. And all of that, I think, helps to explain why the crowd responds the way they do in verse 7. All right, look down to verse 7. It says this, And when they saw it, that Jesus was going to Zacchaeus' house, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Now notice, it does not say some of the crowd grumbled. Right? There will always be some in the crowd who are grumbling about one thing or another. That's not what it says, though. 
It says all in the crowd grumbled. In fact, they were a collective, like, this is not right. Why would Jesus go to Zacchaeus' house? And again, even if we understand, okay, tax collectors probably weren't the best, I think we have a hard time understanding why was the crowd so upset? Why was the crowd so upset? This is difficult for us. Think of it this way. If, if when you first hired Pastor Rob, you found out that most Friday nights he was going to the local IRS agent's house for dinner, you wouldn't think to yourself, oh, we've got a scandal on our hands. Right? You wouldn't think that at all. In fact, you'd probably think, oh, that's great. Rob is really reaching out to the neighbors. He's trying to be missional. This is fantastic. We're so glad Rob's doing that. But we can't make the mistake of equating a 21st century tax collector with a 1st century tax collector. And maybe some of you know IRS agents, and you're like, well, they're pretty good people. Don't make the mistake of confusing your cousin who works for the IRS with Zacchaeus. There's a vast difference here. Zacchaeus was a no-good, lying-cheating scumbag. And we know that because of the way the tax collection system worked. We know that because of the fact that he's rich. And we know that because of the way the crowd responds. And so a better equivalent might be something like this. Let's say that when you hire Pastor Rob, you find out that every Friday he's going to the local drug dealer's house for dinner. You might be, okay, that's a little strange. Or let's say that you found out when I flew in on Friday to maybe put the example in my court, you found out that I headed straight down to the city and had dinner with the uh, owner of a house of ill repute. Right? You, and I'm using nice general terms there, like, but you can get where I'm going with this. right? Like, you would say, okay, maybe he shouldn't be the guest speaker, and maybe it's really good that he's gone. Right? Like this, this is a person of really shady character. Now, I, I don't bring those up to bring into question my character, or certainly to bring into question Rob's character. Oh, hear me. I, I'm, I'm truly saying this. I'm so joyful to God that Rob is here. I love Rob, and I don't think he's doing anything crazy, okay? I just want you to know that. I don't bring up these fictional examples to say, hey, check out what Rob's doing on Friday. Like, I'm not saying that, all right? Hear me. It truly brings me great joy that he's here. I think it's a sign of God's grace to this church. But rather, I bring up these examples to try to get you to understand more what's happening here. Right? He's hanging out with the worst of the worst. And so whoever you think of in our culture that is a terrible moral example, that you'd say, well, that's a person that we should definitely stay away from. That's the type of person that Jesus is hanging out with here. This is the person that everyone in this society would say, if there's the last person on earth you want to hang out with, it's this person. And that explains why the crowd responds the way they do. The people cannot understand why Jesus would want to go to Zacchaeus' house. Does Jesus not realize who Zacchaeus is? Does Jesus not realize that Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector? Does Jesus not realize that Zacchaeus is a lying, cheating fraud? Does Jesus not realize that if there's any person who's not deserving of a visit from Jesus, it's him? And I think the answer is he absolutely knows all of those things. And in fact, I would argue that is exactly why he goes to Zacchaeus' house. Oh, he knows that Zacchaeus is messed up. And he knows that Zacchaeus is the worst of the worst. And that is precisely why he goes. There's some serious intentionality here. Look at what happens in verses 3 to 5. Right, so let's go back now. And he, being Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead. And climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, to be fair, to be fair, I do think Zacchaeus is in a desperate state. Right? 
you don't climb up in a tree when you're a grown man unless either A, there's a kid who's stuck up there or you're just in a pretty weird spot, right? Like if you pulled in the parking lot today and you saw me hanging out in a tree waving to me like, hey, good to see you. It's good to be back in New Hope. You would not think, oh, he's really loosened up since he moved. This is fantastic, right? You would think he is partaking of something other than corn in Nebraska. That's what you would think, right? You would think there is something seriously wrong here that a grown man is hanging out in a tree. And so no doubt, let's be fair to Zacchaeus, he's desperate. But that said, make no mistake, the initiator in this story is clearly Jesus. Clearly Jesus. It's Jesus who calls out Zacchaeus' name. It's Jesus who tells Zacchaeus to come down. It's Jesus who tells Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. And in that phrasing, I must come to your house, there is clearly, clearly something that's being said to us that this is no accident. He must go to Zacchaeus' house. When Jesus shows up at Zacchaeus' house, he doesn't think, oh, what am I doing here? Like, this is not what I was thinking was going to happen. No, he knew what he was doing, right? He must go to Zacchaeus' house. He was purposely going there for a reason. And as verse 9 makes clear, he wasn't going there for a nice dinner because he heard Zacchaeus was a really good cook. He was going there because he wanted to bring salvation to the house of Zacchaeus. And that, friends, is the shocking nature of the story. That even someone as wicked and corrupt as Zacchaeus can be rescued from their sin. And I think it's because Zacchaeus was so wicked and corrupt that Jesus chooses to go to his house. Because he wants to communicate something to us. That he's coming to save sinners. Even the really bad ones. In fact, that's confirmed by the last line in the story. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now there's a danger here. There's a danger in that we can read a story like this and think, well, isn't that nice? Right? Isn't it great that, that Jesus decided to save Zacchaeus? Oh, isn't that cool? He saved the little guy, the little wicked guy. That's awesome. And not realize the Zacchaeus story is really our story. And not realize that when Jesus says he came to save the lost, he's not just talking about Zacchaeus. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. In fact, there's a very subtle hint at the beginning of this passage that there's something more going on here. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And the question is, where is he passing through to? Where is he going? The ultimate answer is Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. That's where he's headed. And the very beginning of this passage reminds us, this isn't just a story about Zacchaeus. He's on his way somewhere else. Just three short chapters from now, Jesus will be betrayed and arrested. Four short chapters from now, Jesus will be crucified and buried. And we know that he wasn't just headed to the cross for people like Zacchaeus. He was headed to the cross for people like you and me. Listen, the reality is that every single person in this room was born with a sinful nature. And all that, we willingly choose to rebel against God. Now, perhaps your rebellion took the form of wild, crazy living. Or perhaps your rebellion took the form of defrauding people out of their money. Or perhaps your rebellion took the form of rule-keeping and self-righteousness. Whatever the case is, make no mistake, every person in this room is in the same spot as Zacchaeus and that you have rebelled against God. That you have not kept His rules and you have not submitted to His reign on your own. And listen, that's a serious problem. Ephesians 2 says that you, apart from Christ, are dead in your transgressions and sins. And when it says dead, what it means is dead, right? You're not alive. You have no life. 
Ephesians 2 goes on to say that apart from Christ, we have no hope. That apart from Christ, we are destined for the wrath of God. Now mind you, when Ephesians 2 says all those things, it's not talking about the Zacchaeus of the world. It's talking about every single person. This is our state apart from Christ. And until you understand that, you won't understand what you need to be rescued from. You won't understand that you're a sinner in desperate need of grace. You won't understand that you are in the same boat as our wicked little friend Zacchaeus. But this is all of our state. All of us have rebelled against God. But the good news of this passage is that Jesus came to rescue sinners. And that that hope is what sustains us here. Jesus came to live a perfect life and die on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead that if anyone would repent, they could be saved. And so what that means, very practically, is that Luke 19 is very good news for every person in this room. Oh, when you read this story, I hope you're not thinking about a tree. And I hope you're not thinking about a wee little man. I hope you're thinking about the grace of God that is available to you today. Zacchaeus' story reminds us, no matter how far gone you are, you are never too far gone for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to say this. For some of you in this room today, that is really, really good news, isn't it? For some of you, there's something you did in the past that you're so ashamed of that deep down you question, could God ever forgive me? For some of you, there's something you did this week that if your grandmother found out, she would blush, right? And you're ashamed of Or for some of you, there's something you did last night that you're hoping and praying no one in this room knows about. If that's you, I have good news. You can still be rescued. You can still be rescued because Christ came to save sinners. The gospel is not for those who are fixed. It's for those who know they need fixed. The gospel is not for the strong. It's for those who know they are weak. So if you're here today and your biography is similar to Zacchaeus, maybe minus the tax collecting thing, rejoice because Christ came to save sinners. And may today be the day of your salvation. I plead with you, whatever your background is, whatever brought you in these doors today, if you're here and you don't know Christ, I pray that you would see his mercy and grace to Zacchaeus and you'd realize that is available to you too. But listen, Luke 19 is not just good news for those who are morally wicked on the outside. It's also good news for those who are more subtle in their sin. Luke 19 is good news for all people, not just the rule breakers, but also the rule keepers. If you're here today and you grew up going to church all of your life, maybe you were dedicated as an infant, maybe you were brought up in a Christian home, but you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ, I just want you to know you too can be saved. Because remember in verse 1, he's going to the cross to die for all sinners, whether they're the rule breakers or the rule keepers. Now most of you know I was like the latter. I was a rule keeper. I grew up going to church. I kept all the rules. I knew all the things about Jesus, but I never submitted to his rule and reign. But in the fall of 1999, God miraculously opened my eyes to the point where I realized I desperately need Christ. I needed a Savior. And so my prayer is that even if you are a rule keeper, even if you're a church goer, even if you're religious and you've never accepted Christ, that today you would see Zacchaeus' story and you realize this can be available to you too. And so wherever you are in your rebellion, whether you're the wild living rebellion or whether you're the moral rule keeper rebellion, I would just encourage you, when you see the story of Zacchaeus, I pray that you realize salvation can be available for you today. And if you're here today and you already know Christ and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm on board, I would hope you read this story and you are filled with gratitude and that you would worship, right? You would recognize this grace is truly incredible. 
you would recognize the Zacchaeus story is your story. And that you can be filled with gratitude. If you're a Christian, your salvation is no less spectacular than that of Zacchaeus. You were lost, and now you're found. You were dead, and now you're alive. You were blind, and now you can see. That's the amazing good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scandal of the gospel is not that people like Zacchaeus can be saved. The scandal of the gospel is that any of us can be saved. How in the world could a group of people that rebel against the king consistently, who hate him in our sin, how could we possibly live in his kingdom forever? And the only answer to that question is through the miraculous, saving, surprising, scandalous grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you get that, when I say get that, I don't mean you're like, oh yeah, I know who Jesus is. I mean like, you get it. Like it filters down into who you are. It bleeds into your heart. Like you, you resonate with this. You love this story. If you get it, it will change the way you live. I promise. In fact, that's the other thing I want to point out here. The first is just the surprising and scandalous nature. The second is the life-transforming power of the gospel. Now notice what happens with Zacchaeus in this story. All right, there's something pretty crazy that happened. Look, look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, and this is what we read. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. And don't be confused by the order of verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, Zacchaeus does some radical things. In verse 9, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. But in doing so, Jesus is not at all suggesting that salvation came because of what he did. That would cut at the heart of the gospel. Ephesians 2, for it's by grace you've been saved, not by works. What Jesus is doing here in Luke 19 is saying that Zacchaeus' works were evidence that the grace of God had already impacted him. All right, make sure you understand that. If you are saved by the grace of God, by grace of God we just mean the undeserved favor of God. If he's opened your eyes to see the truth, then you will live differently. You will live differently. That's the evidence that you have been saved. That's the evidence that the grace has impacted. You will change the way you live. But it's not vice versa. You don't live a certain way to earn his approval. It's because of what he did. What happens here is that Zacchaeus realizes who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He realizes that Jesus is the one who'd rescue the people from their sin. And when by God's grace he came to that conclusion, he started living differently. Now, two things characterize Zacchaeus' actions here. All right, two things. One is he gives away half of his goods to the poor. Now, this is one of those phrases that you can read in the Bible, and you're like, oh, that's cool. Like, Zacchaeus gave away half his stuff. But do you realize he gave away half of his stuff? Like, do you realize how significant that is? He gave away half his stuff. Now, according to Jewish tradition, if a man were to give away 20% of what he owed, that was considered to be extremely generous. In America, I would say this standard is probably quite a bit lower than that. In fact, I think the average American gives around 3% of their income to charity each year. And yet here's Zacchaeus giving away 50% of what he owes. I mean, what is going on here? If something bizarre is happening with Zacchaeus. If tithing is kind of like the benchmark, and if 20% is like super generous, then why is he giving away 50%? Come on, what's going on, Zacchaeus? And then something else happens, right? Something else very strange. Zacchaeus decides to right his wrongs by paying back fourfold anyone he's defrauded. Now again, I think that's one of those things where, oh, that's a good idea. He wronged people, he should pay them back. But the context is helpful here. According to Jewish tradition, according to Jewish law, 
If you were to defraud someone of something, you were required to pay back what you defrauded plus one-fifth. So what does Zacchaeus do? The law says pay back what you defrauded times one-fifth. He pays back what he defrauded times four. Now that tells us a couple of things. One, it reminds us Zacchaeus really was a bad guy. Right? He'd actually defrauded people. Like That's not just speculation. We know it because he wants to pay them back. But two, what it tells us is that there's something really strange going on with Zacchaeus. I mean, think of it this way. And since we've already been talking about taxes, let's, let's just use another tax example. Let's say that last year when you paid your taxes, the IRS decided or came to the conclusion that you had defrauded them by $1,000. Now, maybe it was intentional, maybe it was unintentional, but the IRS sends you a letter and says that you have defrauded them on taxes by $1,000, and the penalty is that you have to pay back what you owe plus one-fifth, so $1,200. Now, I wonder, I wonder how many of you would say, yeah, I just feel so bad, I'm going to write the IRS a check for $4,000, or $5,000, whatever the case is, right? Like, who in the world would do that? I would submit, I would submit that none of you would do that. And maybe I'm wrong, maybe some of you are really generous, you're like, yeah, I just want to give the IRS, I want to fund what they're doing, I really believe in what they're, what they're trying to do. But I doubt it, right? I bet all of you would write a check for $1,200 and be done with it. And yet, what Zacchaeus does here is he pays back what he defrauded times four. And I think that leads to the obvious question, what is going on here? Like, what is happening with Zacchaeus? Why is he doing such crazy stuff? Why is he paying back people four times with the four times more than what he should have. Why is he paying back or giving away half his money? What in the wide world of Bible stories is going on? I mean, what's happening? To answer that question, I think we actually need to go back one chapter to Luke 18. Right, there's a fascinating uh, just comparison between Luke 18 and Luke 19. All right, Luke 18, verse 18. This is the rich fool, or the rich ruler. And the ruler asked him, this is starting in verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, the contrast between Luke 18 and Luke 19 could not be much sharper. In both chapters, you have a rich man. Chapter 18, the rich man walks away, unwilling to part with any of his money. Chapter 19, he runs to Jesus and he can't seem to get rid of his money fast enough. Luke 18, Jesus commands a man, give away your money. Luke 19, he doesn't give a command at all, and yet the man gives away all his money. How do you explain the difference? What's the difference between these two stories? Right, they're, they're clearly, I think Luke here, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is setting them up to show us something. And I think part of the answer is found in verses 24 to 27 of Luke 18. I think we need to credit where credit's due here. Verse 24, Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. 
Right, so understand what he's doing here. Jesus is saying to the rich man, or he's actually saying to the disciples, it's impossible for a rich man to be saved. It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But he says what's impossible with men is possible with God. And so when we read Luke 19, and we see this rich man giving away all of his money, we're left with one conclusion. This is the work of God. Zacchaeus has done something, or God has done something powerful in Zacchaeus' life. When God opens Zacchaeus' eyes, he understood who Jesus was. This radically changes perspective on everything. Do you understand this is what happens with the gospel of Jesus Christ? When God opens your eyes, he transforms the way you think. And Zacchaeus did not need to be commanded to do the right thing. He wanted to do it. Why? Because he understood the grace and generosity of God. Because he understood who Jesus really was. And listen, the implications of this are enormous for us this afternoon. Now listen, there's a couple of temptations here. There's a couple, of, a couple of ways we could go in a dangerous direction with this. One direction we could go in is we could kind of say, well, you know, Zacchaeus, that's great, but maybe he could have been a little wiser with his money. Right? Maybe he should have like, invested some, and then he'd have more to give away. I would guess that there's a fair amount of you that in your mind, that's kind of how you think about a story like this. Unless you think I'm just setting up some sort of straw man, let me put it to you this way. If you had a child and they went off to college and they became a Christian and they called back home and they said, hey, mom, dad, I know you've put a lot of money in my bank account over the years, but I'm going to give away half of what I owe to the poor. I would just guess some of you might be like, well, hold on a minute. Let's think about how we can best use our money, right? So I think that's one danger that we can hear the story and go, whoa, whoa, Zacchaeus, that's cool you did that, but that's, I don't know, that's a little bit radical. Now, I think there's a danger on the other end. The danger on the other end is some of you might be tempted to think, well, this is the new standard for what Christianity looks like. If you want to be a Christian, you have to give away half of what you owe to the poor, and you need to pay back anything you've done wrong times four. So some of you might say, well, I just need to follow in the exact footsteps of Zacchaeus, because some of you are rule keepers, right? And you just want a new rule. Just tell me what to do. But I would just humbly suggest that both sides of that equation whether you're the person who says, whoa, Zacchaeus is a little too radical, or the person who says, we must follow exactly what Zacchaeus has done, both sides are missing the point of the story. The point of the story is not that Zacchaeus gave away half of his possessions or that he paid back what he owed times four. The point of the story is that when Zacchaeus understood who Jesus was, it radically changed his thinking. And it filled him with radical over-the-top joy, which led to radical over-the-top action. He stopped thinking in terms of what he should do and started thinking in terms of he wanted to do because his priorities had been changed. That's the point of the story. Here's why I think the story of Zacchaeus matters for you as an individual. If you're here today and you think, yeah, I probably should go to church, and I probably should read my Bible, and I probably should tell people about Jesus, and I, I probably should be generous with my money, and I probably should be involved with this program in the church, and I probably should be living out my faith in the workplace, and I probably should be trying harder to point to Christ in my marriage. If that's your attitude, may I gently suggest to you that perhaps you don't really understand the gospel yet. Or, at the very least, that you've lost sight of its beauty. There is no should in the Zacchaeus story. Zacchaeus does not appear to be operating out of obligation. He's overflowing with joy and a desire to bless others. Why? Because his love for Christ was now greater than his love for money. His love for Christ was now greater than his love for anything else. And this is what happens when the gospel gets a hold of you. All the things that we love now, whether it's money or our job or our family, all of those things slide to the background because Jesus is better. That's what happens when the gospel gets a hold of you. That's the point of the story. 
that when he sees who Jesus is, he can't be held back. Jesus doesn't have to tell him, do these things. He's overflowing. This is what the gospel does. When you understand who Jesus is and what he's done, it's not a should, it's I get to. So my question is, does that describe you? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you on the cross? Do you understand the scandalous nature of his grace for you? Do you understand that you were rescued while you are still a sinner? Do you understand that you were in the exact same boat as Zacchaeus, whether you be a rule breaker or a rule keeper? If so, you'll start thinking like this. I get to come and worship on Sundays. I get to share my faith with people in the workplace. I get to live out my faith with my family. I get to pray. I get to read my Bible. I get to do all these things. Because that is what happens when you understand the grace of God. That's what motivates us. You stop asking, what's required of me? Instead, you start asking, how can I be a blessing to others? You stop asking, what do I need to do? And you start asking, what does Jesus want me to do? What do I get to do because it brings me more joy? Now hear me. I'm not saying you'll always feel that way. I'm not saying every day you wake up and you're like, I, just, I can't wait to read my Bible today. No, it's, we have a spiritual battle, right? We have an enemy who's against us. It's going to be hard. There's going to be days where it feels like duty. But generally speaking, Christians should be marked by joy. And if that joy does not describe you, my first question would be this. Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? And not just like in theory, but in reality. Maybe you do and you say, I'm, I'm still lacking that joy. I would just say, remember your first love. Go back. Remember the story. Put yourself in Zacchaeus' shoes. Remember that this is your story too. And pray that God restores your love for the gospel. And then hopefully, when you come here week after week, you'll be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which leads to the other thing I would say. I think there are implications in this story for the church. Namely, that whether it's New Hope Fellowship or my church in Nebraska or any other church, our job is to point you to Christ every single week. The goal of biblical preaching is not to give you a morality lesson. It's not to give you 20 tips on how to improve your family life or to give you a list of commands to follow. Not that there's anything wrong with commands. In fact, a lot of the New Testament is commands. It's just that we're motivated to follow those commands by what Jesus did for us, not by sheer willpower. We're not motivated because the preacher says, obey these commands, but instead we're motivated by the love of Christ. The goal of biblical preaching is to point to Jesus. Furthermore, the goal of Christianity is to remember what Jesus has done. And so what that means for you as a church and what that means for you as an individual is we can never get away from the message of Jesus because this is what changes us. We must constantly remind ourselves of the good news of Christ. The way forward is to look backwards to the cross. Now maybe you're thinking, that sounds kind of boring. Right, just to remind myself about what Jesus did and think about what Jesus did and the character he has, that just seems kind of boring to you. My response would be, I can't think of anything that is less or anything that is more exciting. Right? Like I can't think of anything that is more exciting than to meditate and think and ponder the truths of the reality of the gospel. Oh, I pray that when you wake up on Sunday mornings, you think, I can't wait to get to church and be reminded what Jesus has done. I pray that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you think, I can't wait to open up my Bible and remember the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that that is our attitude. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to. I'm saying because I believe it's true. That Jesus is the key. 
as the story of Zacchaeus reminds us, it's the grace of God that motivates. It's understanding who Jesus is. That changes our perspective. And that's why I love the story of Zacchaeus. So listen, the next time you hear the story of Zacchaeus, sure, go ahead and sing that song about the wee little man. But then I hope you start moving on to some other songs in your mind. Songs like Amazing Grace and Christ Alone. Because it's the grace of God that changes everything. Just ask the wee little man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. It's abundant. It's undeserved. It's scandalous. What a privilege it is for us to be able to meditate today on the good news of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, to be reminded that he came to save sinners and to be reminded that we are those sinners. And we pray that like Zacchaeus, we would leave here today not thinking, what should I do? But rather thinking, what do I get to do because the grace of God has changed me forever? Oh God, help us to be people who meditate on the truth of what we read here in Luke 19 and live differently. Not out of obligation, but out of joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.